Hey guys, it's Sean, and today I have the honor of speaking with Doug Conant, who is an internationally renowned business leader, New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author, and a keynote speaker. Now, Doug is a devoted leadership practitioner whose 40-year career has been defined by a commitment to studying, practicing, improving, and teaching the tenets of leadership that work. Now, before sending the C-suite executive positions at Nabisco Food Company, Campbell Soup Company, where he was CEO and instrumental in turning that company around and having them thrive, and also Avon Products, he began his career in marketing at General Mills and held leadership positions in marketing and strategy at Kraft. So Doug has a wide range of experience with some huge organizations. And today on the episode, we are going to talk about a few key themes around leadership, and those are making hard decisions, something every leader has to do how to connect with your people to lead and inspire them, and then how each of us can develop our own leadership abilities. So please enjoy this conversation with Doug I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is just a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Michael Jordan, Bob Iger, Bruce Lee, Nick Saban, and many more. I also have 50-plus book recaps of my favorite reads. So you can find everything I just mentioned and more at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Doug, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Oh, great. It's great to be here. I am very honored to be able to have this conversation. And I thought a fun spot to start would actually be around a similar teacher you and I both had in our youth. And that teacher is actually a wall and a ball. And you ended up playing tennis. I I played the sport of lacrosse, but I spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours with myself, a wall and a ball. And I want to know what this practice for you led to. Well, interestingly, I, I don't, I, you and I have just met, but uh, uh, every time I do, this will make sense in a minute. I'm going to sort of tell it like my wife would tell it. Uh, uh, every time I take a Myers-Briggs test, I test as an introvert. And I was a very introverted kid growing up and uh, not particularly comfortable with people. And I found that I could interact with a wall and it did just what I wanted it to do. It it hit the ball back to me. So uh, 
I, I just, I, I learned the game of tennis hitting against a wall, uh, which was about a block from my home and then against the garage door when I couldn't get to the wall. And then in the basement, uh, of the house in the unfinished part of the basement doing half volleys against a wall. And, uh, it was, I, I don't know. It was great therapy for me. I, I, I loved it. The repetition, I actually got pretty good. And in the fullness of time, it paid for my college education anyway. And, uh, it was a, a great experience. I actually wrote a blog about, um, several years ago now about 13 life lessons from the game of tennis. And, you know, it all started with that wall. I'm wondering if you, if you could pull out one of those lessons that just comes top of mind for you that you learned from tennis, what would that be? Well, uh, the, the top line, uh, the power of intention, you, you, you know, you, you don't just get good at something by the seat of your pants. Mm -hmm. Uh, as you talk about your lacrosse experience, you got to work at it. You've got to bring great intentionality if you really want to excel at your craft. And, uh, I did that with tennis and it was a lot of hard work because I wasn't naturally gifted in that way. Uh, and, uh, so if there was one thing I pulled away is it's the power of intentionality and I've applied that to everything I've done. Uh, you still have to be intuitive. You still lead life largely by the seat of your pants, mm -hmm. but on the important things, uh, I have found it's awfully important to be intentional. And particularly in leadership, which is what I talk most about now, if you want to be a good leader, you got to really think about what does that mean and how can I do that in a way that uh, raises up others. And so uh, that's the life lesson from tennis that's probably foremost in my thinking. Yeah, Doug, I'm hoping we can even explore this a bit further, thinking about intentionality comboed with persistence over time, right? Like the playing against the wall, that's a habit. So I'm wondering about intentional habits for you and how you cultivated them. Any that have been persistent for decades now? Well, uh, I'm a big believer. There's a wonderful book written uh, 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 called Atomic Habits by James Cleary. And uh, it's basically about the power of small practices that in the fullness of time deliver great compound interest and allow you to really excel at whatever you're doing. Uh, and uh, my observation is that from a, from a leadership perspective, uh, you have to figure out the leader you want to be. I wrote a whole book on this called The Blueprint. And, uh, and then you have to take small steps, develop small practices to, to bring that vision of the best version of yourself as a leader to bring that to life. And in fact, in my, in, in the blueprint, uh, I have six steps and, and, uh, after you have built your leadership plan, which we may or may not talk about, the first thing I say is, okay, now we have to bring it to life with practices, small practices that begin to signal the kind of leader you want to be. In my case, I, 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 at the heart of my leadership philosophy is this notion of honoring people, inspiring trust, and clarifying a higher purpose to my work. Those three things mean a lot to me. And then, well, how do I bring that to life? Well, little practices like handwriting thank you notes before there was the internet. I'm, I'm old. Uh, and uh, handwriting thank 10 to 20 notes a day 
to people in our company. At the time, I was uh, CEO of Campbell Soup Company, 10 to 20 notes a day celebrating their contributions and honoring them in a way where uh, they knew I was paying attention and that their contributions were valued, not just by their immediate boss, but by the CEO of the company who was paying attention. And uh, those silly little thank you notes, 10 to 20 a day, when I retired a decade later, uh, I was being interviewed for a magazine article and they said, you, you wrote a lot of notes. How many notes did you write? And we, I didn't know. Uh, so we did the math there, 10 to 20 a day. I did them six days a week, religiously. And it turned out that I wrote over 30,000 notes handwritten to all the Campbell employees. We only had 20,000 employees. So anywhere around the world in the 38 countries where we had operations, the odds were you had a handwritten note from me thanking you for some specific thing you did that helped advance the interests of Campbell Soup Company. And do you think people started noticing that the CEO was paying attention to all this? And these notes were on everybody's cubicle. Uh, over time, that little practice sort of found its way into the nooks and crannies of how everybody at Campbell operated. Uh, they didn't have to write notes, but the important thing was that we were celebrating contributions of significance. We were honoring people. And uh, what I found in the larger organization world, corporately, academically, government, is that organizations tend to become great critical thinking machines. We can find what's wrong and we're going to fix it. But we don't do a very good job of celebrating what's right. And when you were playing lacrosse, the best coaches were celebrating what was being done right while they were course correcting the things that were being done wrong. And uh, I think if you want to be a great coach or a great leader, you've got to see the whole field, not just the places where you're falling short. And uh, that's what I try to do as a leader. And that's how I took this lofty idea of honoring people, inspiring trust, and made it real for people with handwritten thank you notes. Yeah, I'm a huge so that's fan. a practice. No, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the language you use there, celebrating contributions of significance. And, and you're right. The the best leaders I've been around, uh, they don't just bring out the negatives. And Sean, you were doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. They highlight the wins, but they also tack, tack on the practical application. I just think that's so in, important to remind leaders to do. W one of the things I'm actually intrigued about is how did this practice begin for you? Was there an early note that you wrote and then it just kind of tacked on from there? Well, my mother would take the credit and she deserves it. Uh, she passed away a few years ago, but I spoke at her nursing home and we got into, I became known as a guy who wrote thank you notes because I wrote a lot of them. And I was doing this talk to uh, the staff at her retirement community and she was invited to come to the offsite. So she came and I was answering questions about these notes and she said, and she took all the credit for it because I wasn't ever allowed to play with my Christmas presents until I'd written all my thank you notes. Uh, and uh, back then it was hard to get me to write a thank you note. Uh, but it, it all started there. But ultimately I lost a job. I was fired from a job and the, uh, 
and my outplacement counselor, because I was introverted, as I referenced earlier, I felt really awkward going out and looking for a job. It was hard for me. He said, you're going to be a terrible interview. You got to, how are you? I don't know how you're going to get a job. Uh, you've got to come up with a way to show up for people that, that helps you stand out. And had a bunch of things that we did, one of which was to start writing thank you notes to people. And the way I did it is if I came to interview uh, at a company in a building, I would get the name of everybody I met there, including the person at the front desk at reception. I would get all the names. I would then have my day of interviews. I would then walk to the coffee shop next door and I would handwrite a personal thank you note to each person that talked to me, including the person at reception. And I would then walk back over and hand all these notes to the person at reception and say, could you have these delivered today? And it didn't always happen. It might've gone the next day, but First of all, the person at reception had never gotten a thank you note from anybody other than maybe one of their kids. Uh, they'd never gotten one at work. And what do you know? The next time I went back there, boy, did they remember me. Who are you talking to today, Doug? Can, can, can I look out for this or that or whatever? Uh, I had people cheering for me that when I walked in the building all because I was paying attention and I, and I wrote thank you notes. That's where it really started in earnest for my, in my work life. I was, uh, how old was I? Maybe 30, 33, 34, something like that. Doug, but that's where it started. Oh, that's fantastic. You're going to appreciate this story. Uh, so obviously being a tennis fan, Roger Federer, one of the, the all time greats. So, uh, I, I I read this one time, so I used to be at Nike, and when he would come out to Nike headquarters, uh, there was a story. He, he was walking out of a building, um, long day of meetings, things like that, and he's about 300 yards away from the building, and he tells the, the people he's with, oh, wait, hold on, I got to head back in. He runs back into the building to thank the security guard for holding the door, um, and so it was just one of those small little things, and they talk about it. He makes these small little connections uh, with, with people when he doesn't have to. Um, I just thought you'd, you'd enjoy that story being a yeah, fellow yeah, tennis no. player. Well, I wrote, before I wrote the blueprint, my uh, a writing partner and I wrote the book Touch Points, which is all about having powerful leadership, making powerful leadership connections in the smallest of moments. Hmm. That's how you stand out. That's how you differentiate yourself. You're paying attention to the whole room and uh, in the fullness of time, and you're celebrating contributions and, uh, and you're still, you can still be incredibly critical. If, if a mistake's been made, uh, you, you, you call people on it. But at the same time, they know it's coming from a place that where you, you care about the whole performance and you're celebrating what's working as well as dealing with what's not. You know, it's, uh, uh, some of my language over the years has evolved into uh, these great leaders tend to be tough-minded on standards and tender-hearted with people, not one or the other, both. You've got to have high standards. And as a leader, you damn well better understand that you're, you're only as good as the people that are working for and with you. So you're totally dependent on them. And you can't expect them to care about your agenda 
as an enterprise or as a leader unless they genuinely believe you care about theirs. It, it, it's just not sustainable. So this notion of being tough-minded on standards, Roger Federer, highest imaginable standards in tennis, but still a good person and caring person at the same time. Uh, you can't beat it. You know, you, I talk to groups all the time and it's not unlike parenting in a way. You know, you're not always tough on your kids and you're not always supportive of them. You bring some balance to it. You make sure they understand the standards, but you also make sure that, that they know you, they understand that you have their back and that you're supporting them. Same thing's true in work. It, it, you just, I don't believe there's a sustainable, enduring leadership proposition that doesn't cover the both and of that, both tough-minded and tender-hearted. Doug, thinking about being both tough-minded and tender-hearted, is there amount of a time that has to go into that, right? Like, can a new leader come in day one and, and build that level of trust with people? Well, I think it, the, the beauty about leadership is uh, there's no there's no one way to do it. Mm -hmm. You have you have you, you've observed leaders from all walks of life and fields, and they all have different approaches. It tends to be highly situational. It also tends to be the soft stuff. The Roger Federer going back to thank the security guard, or me handwriting a, the soft stuff. And uh, so I don't think there's one way to proceed or another, but I think it's awfully important that in the fullness of time, people see both sides. They see that you're gonna have high standards for performance, but they also know you care. And, uh, you know, as a leader, uh, you're not going to be in a job for very long if you, if you don't care about performance. You're there for that. But also, you have to understand that if you're the people that are working for and with you, if they don't believe you care about them, your performance is at risk, too. So it's about the both and of this, both tough-minded and tender-hearted. And it, it varies when you're, you can get away with, uh, I've been into, I've gone into some very troubled companies and uh, you, you, you have, you ha the company is ready for you to make change because what was being done is not working. So there you set standards and you, you right off the bat, you sort of given permission to make pretty dramatic changes. You see some of the coaches that, that in college sports that that go in and just blow up the program for better or worse. Brian Kelly at LSU right now. Uh, you know, we got to change the culture. It's got to get changed now. And uh, so you have permission to do that. In the fullness of time, my observation would be that you've got to do the both end. Hmm. Uh, but sometimes it you have an opportunity to be a little more nurturing at first and then increasingly become more tough-minded. Other times you've got to start off with a pretty tough-minded approach and, 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 then, and then find a way to be more nurturing. Hmm. I, I would love to hear how this played out when you took the role at Campbell's Soup. And I, I want to dive into that in a few minutes, but I actually want to know and dive back into when you were saying you were let go from a job and you were fired. 
Uh, I, I know this was in your mid thirties. Uh, I'm pretty sure around that time. W what is that like? I'm just wondering how you handled the stress of that moment. Well, I, I didn't handle it very well. I, I, uh, my wife and I had moved to the Boston area from the Midwest and, uh, I was, we were only there th maybe three years and, uh, uh, I, I, I lost my job in a corporate downsizing, but I was totally unprepared for it. And uh, so I, I went to the office one day and uh, the receptionist said, Larry would like to see you up in the, in the office. I was a director of marketing. He was the senior vice president of marketing. And I, he couldn't even make eye contact with me when I walked into the room and he said, Doug, your job's been eliminated. You need to be out of here by noon. I mean, that's what I heard. I, that's what it felt like. And uh, in no time, the conversation was over. There wasn't anything to talk about. So and all of a sudden, nine years of my career was over in a snap. And uh, I had a wife and uh, a newborn son and a three-year-old son uh, and a large mortgage. And... Uh, all of a sudden, here, here we go. What are we going to do? And as I said earlier, I was an introvert. And at that point in my career, I was, I was trying to be a good contributor. I was keeping my head down but uh, and just doing the work. And it, obviously, it wasn't good enough. Uh, I, don't, I didn't do anything wrong, but I didn't do enough right. And so uh, it was it was frightening. So it took me about a year to find a job. I tried to stay in the Boston area because we liked it there and we had relocated there, but couldn't find a job. We ended up moving back to Chicago, and it was uh, it was a uh, personally uh, devastating experience. I, I I I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Now I'm gonna I I. I all that having been said, I said, I'm never going to do that to anybody. Nobody I ever work with is going to have to go through that again. But here is a cautionary tale. Uh, that experience did affect a lifetime worth of corporate decisions on how we were going to honor people. And if they weren't getting the job done, we were going to help them find another job in a, in a healthier way. But the cautionary tale is I did the same thing to somebody else 20 years later. And there were extenuating circumstances and all kinds of other things. But, I, you know, in the, in the, in re, upon reflection, I did the same thing to somebody else. So uh, what I learned from that was I had to be vigilant. I had to be aware of, uh, of this higher calling, this higher sense of responsibility I had. To, to the humanity of my work, not just to the, to the legal, uh, more formal uh, side of my work at, at this time. I was a, I wasn't a CEO, was I? Yeah, I was a CEO at the time. So I, uh, so it's a cautionary tale. You say, I'll never do that to anyone else again. And then lo and behold, you do. And you can't look at yourself in the mirror without thinking, gosh, I could have done that better. Yeah. Well, we're absolutely imperfect beings. I I'm wondering about the, you mentioned a word a few minutes ago, oh, just awareness, right? Like this moment, these tough times, these, these setbacks, they, they give us better awareness and clarity. And one of the exercises 
that you did, I'd love if you could expand upon. And that was just the impact of writing your life story during this time where you let go from your job. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, uh, let, let's face it, most of us, myself included, sort of lead life by the seat of our pants. You know, we have good intentions, uh, and then we're dealing with whatever the day throws at us. And I think you could sort of get away with that when I started my career. But today, the world is a much more challenging place. Information's, uh, my old mentor, Warren Bennis, uh, in 1987, he 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 turned he created the term VUCA world, yeah. volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And if he thought 1987 was a VUCA world, 2022 is a VUCA world on steroids. And and so I don't think you can be an effective leader today if you're doing everything by the seat of your pants because too much stuff is coming at you and you have to be more intentional. And you say, well, how do I become more intentional? I believe the first thing you do is sort of think about how do I want to show up? That's the first step in my process call, and I call it envision where you want to go. The next step is to be reflective, to reflect on your life story, because I believe ultimately your life story is your leadership story. And uh, we've all, there, we've had a lifetime full of experiences that we tend to just put in, put in the parking lot as we go on with our lives. And there's a lot of rich information in there about uh, people that had a profound influence on you, a grandfather, or a coach, a, a maybe a boss. Sadly, it's not too often a boss, but uh, someone, a person of authority or a loved one who, who, whether you realize it or not, imprinted on you in a way that you want to be like them. You want to be like that grandfather or that coach. You want to, and there, there are elements of that. So what, what I challenge people to do is basically write your life story down. My outplacement counsel, when I was fired from my job, he, uh, first thing he did was he said, I want you to handwrite your entire life story, handwrite. And uh, uh, which was better for me because I couldn't type very well. And uh, there were no computers then either. I want you to handwrite your life story. And so, and he said, don't leave anything out. Don't leave anything out. Write everything you can think of about your life and your family's life. And uh, so I went back to him two weeks later, 50 pages, two-sided, on lined paper, small handwriting. My entire life story. I don't know where that is, which is, I, I, I wish I could read it, but I remember writing it. And one of the good things is when you're out of work, you have time to write. So I had plenty of time to, to write and I got it all down in two weeks. And I was amazed at how much I learned about myself and about my experiences, my experiences with tennis and how I learned to compete and how I learned the power of, of intention uh, and the people that my coaches and my, my grandparents and other family members who had a profound influence on me. I had a rich history, which was really pointing me in a direction, but I wasn't paying attention to it. So the first thing I encourage people to do is figure out what you 
the leader you'd like to be? How do you envision that? And the next step is write your life story. What can you learn from that life story? And we go through a process to synthesize it down. And ultimately, you end up with about 10 points that really inform you about how you want to, the direction you want to take to become the best version of yourself based on those life experiences. I think it all starts there. It doesn't end there, though, because after you do the life story piece, that's good, but it's not good enough. The next step is to look beyond the four walls of your life at all these people you admire uh, in Roger Federer or other people you saw at Nike. And what, what appeals to me about how they show up? What speaks to me? And so between your reflection and your study, you develop this sort of inventory of, of uh, observations that ultimately the next step is help you create a leadership plan. How do I want to show up now? Okay, I've looked at my life story. I've looked at all these other people that are pretty cool that I've learned from. Okay, now how do I take all of that and apply it to me so that how I show up? That's called building your plan. And then the practices that we talked about earlier, how do I develop practices that bring this best version of myself to life every day? And then I'm going to wrap it up in a bow by saying the next step is to get on a continuous improvement cycle where you go back to the beginning and you say, now that I've learned all that, is this really what I envision for my leadership? Is there anything else I can learn from my reflection or my study that would affect my plan? Is there a new practice I could bring to bear to help me bring my this best version of myself to life? And uh, what we find is when you bundle it all up, uh, you can really tap into the person you're meant to be. Yeah, that, that speaks deeply. It strikes a chord with me. One of the uh, the phrases I, I love, it's a, it's a word from the ancient Greeks called arete. I, I have it engraved on a bracelet. And it's essentially, are you showing up as that highest version of yourself in each and every moment, meaning moment to moment to moment, you're showing up as that potential that you have inside yourself. Um, so I, I love hearing you talk about this. Is, is this, this intentionality, this continuous practice, is this something you've done from like the get-go of your career, or did this take years to to really start to set stone? Well, I sort of, I, I go back to, I sort of did it in a seat-of-the-pants way. In uh, some other work I've done, we uh, the, the word, uh, there's intentional and then there's incidental. Incidental is sort of seat-of-the-pants, and that's just reacting to the world as it comes to you. I, and sort of intuitively just trying to do a little better every day. That all started with competitive tennis for me, where I saw the power of trying to do better every day and doing it with a little intention. Uh, so I've, I've sort of, going back to my teenage years, I sort of saw the benefit of uh, this notion of continuous improvement and trying to get better at my craft, whatever it is. If your craft is podcasting, always trying to find a better way to do a better podcast, always looking for a new learning, uh, a new opportunity. Uh, so I've had that for a long time, but I really, uh, when I started being responsible for large groups of people, uh, 
uh, I felt this heightened obligation that just doing it by the seat of my pants wasn't going to be good enough. I mean, I was affecting people's lives. I, you know, and I'm just doing seat of the pants. It, to me, it just wasn't good enough. I needed to start working at it. And I really started working at it. I, I had lost my job. I got another job. And then I, uh, they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I met, uh, I had an opportunity to work with Stephen Covey. And, uh, and starting with him in the 80s, I, uh, I, 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 I got on this continuous improvement path in a more disciplined way. And uh, it's been a big part of my life. It's been a, all that having been said, 75% of my day is still by the seat of my pants, just trying to get through the day. Uh, but I think if I can get my rudder in the water for 25% of my day, and I stay focused on what matters most, I'm so much better off. Otherwise, I just feel, using the metaphor, I feel lost at sea, you know? And uh, so, uh, Stephen, you had two things that, to this day, I was just talking to his son this morning. And uh, to this day, I can remember him saying, Doug, what matters most must never be at the mercy of what matters least. And I thought about, I used to make lists of things I needed to do every day and every week. And I would make these long lists. And then I found myself checking off the things I could check off because I could get them done. <laughs> and the important things were never getting checked off. I was just doing the errands and taking care of the little stuff, but I wasn't taking care of the big stuff in a way. I was just, you know, what matters most must never be at the mercy of what matters least. I was focusing on all the least things so I could feel good that I checked them off a list. And the other thing he said to me, which is relevant here is, it's easy to say no if you have a greater yes burning within. And he would say to me, Doug, what is your greater yes? What is really calling you? which goes back to the leadership model, my leadership model that I talked about at the beginning, where I talk about honoring people, inspiring trust, and having all my work tethered to a higher purpose. Uh, I have to make sure I know uh, what that higher purpose is in order to get stay tethered to what matters most. What's your higher purpose right now? My higher purpose right now is to help uh, leaders experience joy, fulfillment, and impact from building high-trust, high-performance teams that honor people, defy the critics, and thrive in the face of adversity. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And I, I know that that, that that takes a lot of thought to get to those Every words. one of those yeah. words yeah. Has, has a meaning to me. I have a model that brings it to life. I have some desired outcomes, which are really joy, fulfillment, and impact. And uh, it helps me, you know, my friend Bill George just published a new book uh, uh, for emerging leaders about finding your true north. His original book was a runaway bestseller. And, uh, and this is a, a, a true north for emerging leaders. And this and and this this language I'm using around purpose and my leadership model and desired outcomes, that's my true north. 
So as long as I have that in front of me and I can sort of gut check every day, how am I doing? I find that I stay on course. If, if I didn't have that, I, I could get drawn into any number of uh, uh, things that would have me sideways with that sense of higher purpose. No, I, I love hearing how you think about this and what you've gotten to over all these years. One of the things I'd like to explore is just seeing you light up when you talk about some of these people, talking about Stephen Covey, talking about Bill George. It, it strikes a chord, and I'm just wondering about just the, the different mentors or models that you've looked to over the years. Who comes to mind? Oh, gosh. Look, this is all about learning and growth. You, you know, the world is very Darwinian. You either grow or die. And I, I highly recommend people choose growth. It beats the alternative. And I'm always looking for people I can learn from, even you, Sean. Uh, and uh, as I told you, uh, I've got to get something new out of you before the end of this broadcast. Um, but uh, so I'm always looking for folks. I had a professor at Kellogg Northwestern uh, Ram Sharan, who's now a, a leading, a thought leader in in in, in leadership and management, uh, I, I go out of my way to 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 find people I can learn from. Stephen Covey was one. I've become uh, good friends with, uh, oh gosh, Jim Collins from Good to Great. Uh, Jim Jim's been a supporter of mine and. Amy Edmondson, who's a professor at Harvard, and uh, Susan Cain, who wrote the book Quiet uh, for Introverts. It really spoke to me, and Susan and I have become good friends. Uh, so I've, I've built this network of people that I can learn from and grow with, and uh, the list goes on and on and on. Part of the process in uh, the blueprint, and it's probably the most popular part of all the work we do, is we have people create an entourage of excellence. And so they, cre they get to create their own entourage. And uh, who would you like to travel with from your past, from your present, or in the future? And we literally have them create this tapestry of who, who would be in your entourage? And, and then how do you intentionally build that entourage? and tap into it. Who can you learn from? And you don't need to know them. Many of the people, I, and my entourage, I have many people that obviously I would never have met. Uh, Gandhi is a big one of mine. Mother Teresa is a part of mine. I mean, I find Mother Teresa absolutely fascinating. In the corporate world, it seems like, well, I don't have a budget for this. I can't go do that. I, you know, it's, it's not feasible. Well, Mother Teresa had no money, and she had more moral authority than anyone on the planet. Uh, you know, so uh, there are people, Gandhi, the same way. He failed at everything, and then he finally became an, uh, you know, a world leader of an immense re renown. He was also an introvert, and uh, uh, so I just look out at the world and say, who can I learn from? And it's fun. I, I'm, I'm always fascinated with learning from folks. Teddy Roosevelt was my favorite president, still one of my most favorite presidents. And his language is actually in my purpose. When I talk about defying the critics and thriving in the face of adversity, 
That's from a speech that he wrote. So uh, it's not the critical counselor, the man who points out how the poor man stumbled or, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. Uh, that's Teddy Rose. That's vintage Teddy Roosevelt. And that's where I want to be. I want to be in the arena. And so I carry that with me. So obviously I can go on and on here, but you get the point. There's so, you know, one of the gifts we have in this life is all these points of light that we can learn from. And to just get sucked into a pedantic way of life without learning, without growth, it's we can do better. And if you want to have the responsibility to lead others to higher ground, you have to commit to this path of doing better and learning from the very best. And you can. Anyway, I get off my soapbox. You know, Doug, I love this. I mean, obviously, one of the major reasons <laughs> of this show is to connect with people like yourself to, to share the lessons. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's one of the things I, I love most. You mentioned Roosevelt. I've got Man in the Arena framed in my office. But I, I love this line. Uh, I had a feeling you might bring up Roosevelt because I know how much you appreciate him. And this was uh, after he died. Uh, this person named Edith Wharton shared this about Theodore and how he lived. He said, he was so alive at all points and so gifted with the rare faculty of living intensely and entirely in every moment as it passed. Uh, that was shared in his obituary. Um, and I just love that, the attention. Well, he certainly lived with great intensity. I have a home in Washington, D.C., which is two doors away from where he first lived when he moved to Washington, D.C., with his aunt, no, with his cousin uh, on N Street in, in near DuPont Circle. And uh, yeah, he, I, I, and he would ride his horse. He was ride his horse to and from this location on DuPont Circle when he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. All the, and then he would, when he was president, he would ride the horse from the White House over to see his nephews and nieces over there. So, uh, yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big Teddy Roosevelt fan. Doug, one of the things you, you've mentioned again and again is just your, your introversion. And I'm assuming a lot of the people who aren't too, too familiar with your backstory are wondering how did this guy who says he's extremely introverted, got laid off from a job in his mid thirties, become the CEO of Campbell's soup company. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about like that specific moment in time, uh, how you actually became hired as CEO there. Well, uh, I have a friend that, you know, Myers-Briggs is what defines introverts. What, yeah, what a, are you actually, test. what are you on Myers-Briggs? I'm an INTJ. Yeah, likewise. But uh, the, uh, but that's real a simplified version. Uh, it's actually a 144 box matrix. It's not just eight boxes. And so this is a complex thing. But I, a friend basically said, look, Doug, a way to think about this introversion is, do you get energy, from, more energy from being by yourself or being with others? And if you get energy from being with others, you're, you're tending towards extroversion. If you get energy by being by yourself, you, you, you're drifting towards introversion. And all this reading and all this study I do, that's where I derive the most joy, by myself, reading, studying, learning, observing, but not in the, not in the middle. I'm not, very rarely trying to be the life of the party. Uh, at Campbell, uh, 
when I got the job, it was uh, I had been I had been president of Nabisco Foods for five years, and we were just in the process of uh, being acquired, and and we had had the best five year run of any food company in the world uh, while I was there. So I had performance metrics that said this is guy you probably are going to want to talk to. He's going to be a CEO someday. And so I, 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 I was, it, it just happened that I had credentials to be considered. And, uh, uh, and so I made a list and I got on and Campbell, uh, recruited me. Uh, but I was, again, I, I'm not a good interviewer uh, uh, for a job. Uh, you know, this is different. But um, uh, so uh, the first time I went to interview with the Campbell board, they had seven people at a restaurant and they were, at a, we had one table. We took over the restaurant. We had one table in New York. And uh, as soon as one person would ask me a question, I'd start to answer it, and then I'd get another question. I felt like I was in front of a firing squad. And uh, I, yeah, it was sort of overwhelming to an introvert. And uh, I thought, well, God, I blew that, you know, afterwards, the disaster. And then I got a call back a day later saying, Doug, that went great. We'd like to do it again. And I'm thinking, well, I, you may want to do it again. I don't want to do it again that way. And I said, do, do I need to meet with her? Yeah, everybody wants to meet. Okay, so we did it again. And I thought, well, how, how, how could I do this in a way that would work for me? And so I got a group of friends together. Uh, there were three or four of us. And we, we worked over the weekend and we tore apart all the publicly available data on the Campbell Soup Company. And we did a situation assessment. We built a plan. We created a revitalization framework for the Campbell Soup Company. And after, after doing all that work, I, we did a piece on me and how I could be the person that could help steer the ship uh, through the troubled waters. And so then I went and I showed up at the next meeting and they all started with, uh, I, I put it in a PowerPoint presentation and I carried, didn't have, again, it was, uh, 19, it was the year 2000. And, uh, I was just carrying all about 10 copies of this PowerPoint presentation in, in a little satchel, uh, as I went into the meeting and they started asking me all these questions again. And I said, I really want to answer all your questions, but I've been thinking about the 87 questions you asked me last time. And I think I can be helpful to the group if I respond to what I took away from the last meeting. And I, I sort of organized it for you. So I, I handed out all my PowerPoint presentations to all the uh, directors. And, uh, and from that moment on, I was running the interview. They weren't. And uh, from that moment on, I was building a relationship with them, which carried us through 10 great years. But uh, I had to do it my way because I wouldn't have been very good, uh, an introvert's way, getting organized ahead of time, thinking about it, writing it down, 
uh, doing it in a pretty pathetically structured way. Uh, uh, but it, it's, it's, what did they see? They saw somebody who cared a lot. I don't think any other candidate had ever brought in a revitalization plan when they were interviewing for a job. Uh, and, uh, and then, then I had two or three pages in there about how I fit the criteria necessary to lead the change. And, uh, but I did it by getting organized and that's how I was able to start to lead the company on my terms while always listening to the input of the board and uh, all the various stakeholder groups. But I sort of had to do it my way. Okay, well, can we actually explore that a bit further, Doug, doing it your way? I feel like so many of us, we look to great leaders and you know you try to adopt their ways, their frameworks, and at a detriment to your own authentic self and how you best operate. I'm just wondering how that it's, merger came to well, be for you. There, there is a, you know, I talked earlier, we talked earlier about, you know, envisioning, reflecting, and then studying the world around you. So you ought to be learning from other leaders. I was studying Jack Welch when Jack Welch was the king of the 20th century leadership group. Uh, but I was studying a whole lot of other people too. So that's helpful, but it's insufficient. Renee Brown has a great quote. She, her quote is, you can either walk inside your story and own it, or you can stand outside of your story and hustle for your worthiness every day. And what I found I was doing early in my career, I was not walking inside of my story. I was walking inside my parents' story for me, my coach's story for me, my teacher's story for me. And then my boss's story for me, I was doing, I was living their life for them, trying to make them happy. I wasn't paying attention to my story. And uh, what I, I, I have seen is uh, every leader has their own unique version of themselves that will give, be the highest and best use of their power to influence others. It's up to every leader to figure out what that is. And then to walk in that story. Uh, and if, if you're just trying, you know, I, I could never be Jack Welch. It wasn't me. I could never be Stephen Covey. That wasn't me either. But I could learn from those things and I could have those things inform all of my other life experiences to help me create a sense of, go back to Bill George, a sense of what the true north is. Uh, I'll, I'm going to throw one more quote at you, just because uh, I, just just because I can. Uh, Warren Bennis, who uh, talked about earlier with the VUCA World, Warren had a great quote, and he was another mentor of mine. Uh, spent time with him out in Southern California, and uh, his his quote is: "Becoming a leader is synonymous with becoming yourself. It is precisely that simple, and it is also that difficult." And becoming yourself is a hard thing. Uh, but gosh, you only got one life to live. You ought to work at it. it. I can't think of a higher or better use of your time than becoming yourself and doing it in a way that can help lift the lives of the people around you. You've mentioned Warren multiple times. He, I've read a tremendous number of his books, studied him a lot. 
you, you were so fortunate to get to spend some time with him before he passed. Any Anything else, just lasting impressions that Warren Bennis left you with? Well, the first book I ever read by Warren's, it wasn't his first book he ever wrote, was uh, uh, Leading People is Like Herding Cats. And I, I the title just hit me. Uh, I was, I was managing, I was herding cats at the time and it just spoke to me and, and, uh, I'll, that's what I remember. Ultimately, my first book was, uh, was published, uh, in the Warren Bennis collection of books and he consulted on it. And, uh, he was, uh, he was a remarkably insightful, uh, guy who was just he would he he was so giving of himself to help you grow and learn and i was fascinated by him because here's a guy the only guy i ever talked to who was friends with ira maslow who would tell me about the conversations he had with maslow about his hierarchy uh this is stuff that and was a i i could all i i felt so blessed to be able to just sit at his feet and have breakfast with him at the Viceroy Hotel in uh, Santa Monica, California on the beach and, and just uh, share with him my thoughts and, and have him listen and comment. Uh, just a, an incredibly giving and sharing guy. And uh, uh, if I had a Mount Rushmore for the 20th century of leadership gurus who really got it, Warren would be one of those, one of those. And uh, he, uh, he had this capacity to get to the essence of the challenge at hand. For instance, becoming yourself is precisely that simple. It's also that difficult. He, 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 he would find a way of getting to the, the essence of, of what matters most. Doug, who else would be on that Mount Rushmore? Oh, I don't know. I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to get four. In my lifetime, Stephen Covey would yeah. be there because he had a profound influence on me. In my lifetime, Jim Collins would be there because he helped me lift my sights and then think about how to operationalize it within the context of a company. Both Warren and Stephen were good at my own, my own development. And, and on the edges of influencing others. But Jim really looked at the full enterprise. How do you go from being a good company to being a great company? And, and uh, he sort of helped me figure out, ultimately, in all of his work, uh, Good to Great was, at, I don't know if it still is, it probably is the best-selling business book of all time. And... Uh, uh, he helped cement my belief that uh, it's all about the people. Uh, you got to get the right people on the bus before you can do anything else. Uh, you, you know, and, uh, and so I, uh, I learned a lot uh, from working with him and, and reading everything he's written and talking to him about it. So I guess I'd have him there. Uh, then I've got a whole panoply of others. Uh, someone who's a, been a big influence in the last few years who I didn't know very well until 
two years ago is Brene Brown. And uh, she's had a profound influence on me, this whole issue of vulnerability and, uh, and being yourself. And uh, she sort of helped me get through my introversion thing in a deeper way, as did Susan Cain. So they're, they're, you know, the list goes on. Yeah. Brene Brown's got one of those beautiful questions uh, I love, and that's what's worth doing, even if I fail. Um, I think that that adds a lot of clarity of things that are important yeah. and matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love her. Uh, she and I really, uh, we, we, we're on the same page on a lot of things. I think that what I admire about her is, and what's important to this conversation, uh, she's a very courageous woman. And, uh, you know, and uh, there's a Maya Angelou quote that she says, the, the most important trait anyone can have is the trait of, of courage. Because without courage, you can't develop any other trait with consistency. And, uh, uh, and as I was talking to her, we were, we were talking about this, and I, I sort of had this mini epiphany that, you know, leaders were having trouble being courageous. And uh, in the face of all the pandemic-laced chaos that was going on. And the epiphany to me is it's hard for them to have the courage of their convictions if they don't really know what their convictions are. Mm. And that's because we've got a group of leaders, by and large, who are leading life by the seat of their pants. And they don't really know what their convictions are. So it's hard to react to things if you're not sure where you stand on things. So uh, uh, this notion of having the courage of your convictions, Brene has the courage of her convictions. She's thought about it. She's anchored herself in what matters most to her. And she has a point of view. And I love that. And it's battle tested. And, uh, and, and I think more leaders need to be more of a student of their craft and have a point of view that's anchored in study and reflection uh, and uh, not just seat of the pants uh, thinking. Well, Doug, now this has me really interested. The the early days when, when you first joined Campbell, just thinking about some of the things you just mentioned, right? Like business is all about the people, the the courage you need as a leader, the clarity, the intentionality, so you're not flying by the seat of your pants. So when you joined Campbell, it, a little chaotic scenario going on there. Um, I know some, some troubled times. I'm just wondering what that looked like for you then, thinking about how you blend all of those different things I just mentioned at the start of your time with Campbell. Well, uh, without getting into the weeds on this too much, Campbell was the poorest performing food company in the world, major food company in the world out of the top 20. It was number 20. Uh, uh, we had lost half our market value in the prior two years. Um, we, uh, uh, our, our businesses were failing. We'd have had several layoffs. We were headquartered in the poorest, most dangerous city in the United States at the time. Camden, New Jersey. Uh, the facility itself was surrounded by razor wire with guard towers. It felt like a minimum security prison, uh, but it was there so people could feel safe. Could have fooled me. But uh, 
It was incredibly trying times. And we and the leading food analysts were comparing us to a buggy whip, an old economy, canned soup company, same products we were selling a uh, hundred years earlier uh, in a decaying part of the East Coast. And uh, You're, you no really hope. entered a, a no great hope. scenario there, huh, Doug? No hope. <laughs> well, uh, you know, success is a low base, and we had a low base. But um, I think what you have to do as a leader when you go into a situation like that, you have to declare yourself. And at that point, I was pretty well anchored. I was armed with a revitalization framework that I had already created before I even joined the company. Uh, I didn't talk about that with anybody, but I was really well anchored in what the situation was as well anchored as you could be without living it. And, uh, and I, I talked about uh, this notion of a couple things. I talked about being tough-minded on standards and tender-hearted with people. And if, if we don't evidence that we care about your agenda, it's hard for me to uh, imagine that you would care about our agenda as a company. So the first order of business is for us to step up and, and show a commitment to you. And, uh, I was using that language. I was using the language of you can't win in the, you, you must first win in the workplace before you can win in the marketplace in an enduring way. That grew out of some of my work with Jim Collins, actually. Uh, so it, uh, I had this language. I was declaring myself from day one. And, uh, and the other theme in that first year was expect action. We have to deal with this right here, right now. And so, uh, we made some early calls about, from a business perspective about what needed to be done. Uh, at the same time, I started writing all these damn thank you notes about all this good stuff going on. Because even in the most broken company, eight out of 10 things that are being done are being done right. Hmm. But everybody's focused on the two things that are being done wrong. And so I started bringing that perspective day one. and. Uh, and I'm sure everybody was saying, we'll see how long this guy lasts. But uh, uh, so I, I was starting to, I declared myself, I started to manage in a way that with practical practices that would bring that commitment to life and uh, made some tough decisions. We created a leadership model. We said uh, for everyone in the company, uh, the, the number one thing you need to do is inspire the trust of all of our stakeholders, beginning first and foremost with your colleagues in the company. If they can't trust you, they can't trust our agenda. So uh, we created this leadership model that applied to the receptionist all the way up to me. We held people accountable for it. And inspiring trust was the number one thing, the, the sixth thing out of this, out of this wheel was producing extraordinary results. So we were talking about building trust and connecting it to performance. Uh, and we just, uh, uh, we beat that drum relentlessly. I guess the, the other, another Stephen Covey quote will come in here. Uh, <laughs> Stephen used to say, Doug, you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. You got to behave your way out of it. I used that a lot with my sons when they were teenagers. Can't talk your way out of something you <laughs> behaved your way into. And our company had behaved its way into a messy situation. We weren't going to fix it overnight. So we managed expectations. We said, 
in the fullness of time, over the course of this decade, we're going to be a world-class food company again. But between where we are and where we want to be is going to take time. And so the first three years, we were committed to going from being the worst to being competitive on a good day. And we were. The next three years, we were committed from being competitive to being good every day and right in the middle of the pack. And then from there, we were committed to being uh, to, to being a leader in the global food industry, which we were by the time we wrapped it up 10 years later. But it was uh, declaring ourselves, making tough decisions, at the same time, evidencing a real commitment to the people. And uh, the good news was we had the fundamentals. We had, we had a business that we could, uh, that could thrive in the global food industry, and it just needed some TLC for a few years, and which we provided. So that's, uh, and I guess lastly, we had to make be willing to make some tough-minded changes. We turned over 300 of the top 350 leaders in the company in the first three years. I don't know of another company ever that's turned over 300 of the, of the top, think of Nike when you were there, turning over 300 of the top 350 leaders uh, and, and, and doing better. Uh, uh, that, was a, that was a horrible time. But we gave all of our leaders this chance to step up, to get in the game, inspire trust, produce results, be tough-minded and tender-hearted, be committed to winning in the workplace, as well as the marketplace. So we had an opportunity for them to get in the game. But if they couldn't get there, we had to make decisions. And of the three, we turned over 300. We kept 50 of the top 350. We promoted 150 from within. So a lot of young talent had a chance to uh, thrive. And, but then we had to go out and hire another 150 from all over God's green earth to fill certain slots with, uh, with this commitment to uh, uh, revitalizing this America, American icon company that nobody thought could be reinvented. And, uh, and we, we, had, we had ended up having a great run, but uh, it, was, uh, it was challenging. What, what, what isn't obvious with hindsight, look, like, I don't even know how that's possible, turning over 300 to 350. Like, what what else can, can you look back to and say this was probably a critical element of us being able to not only survive that, but then thrive moving forward? Well, it's testimony to having your act together before. The best time to uh, be ready to lead a change is before you get into it. Uh, I happened, at, when I was at Nabisco prior we, we rebuilt Nabisco with talent. And uh, if there was one thing I was good at was uh, attracting and developing talent. And uh, so I knew every, I knew virtually everyone in the, of any, uh, uh, I knew virtually everyone in the consumer packaged goods space uh, of any at a certain level. And so I knew what it took to win. I knew all the players in the space because we recruited to rebuild Nabisco. And so I would, and I had this belief that you got to get the right people on the bus. So the first thing we did was get the right people on the bus. 
uh, I couldn't have done that if I hadn't spent 10 years building that network uh, before I got to Campbell. So uh, again, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, the time to have your act together is before you have to go out on the field and perform for the first time. Yeah. Another interesting thing, though, is you say you, your ability to attract this talent um, and connect with these people, but also being extremely introverted. I think we think of the the total the prototypical connector um, is, you know, the life of the party. Um, well, I don't think so. Uh, it may, maybe at Nike, but uh, not, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, humility, you know, when Jim Collins did his good to great work, He's, he, he identified, I can't remember there, he studied uh, 25 companies or something like that over decades and, uh, and found the highest performing companies in their sectors that wildly outperformed everybody else. And uh, he thought he was going to find all Jack Welch's running these companies. And in reality, he couldn't believe the results because he didn't know any of them, never heard of any of them. And he said, what's going on here? And he, he, he did his own leadership framework and he called it level five leadership. And he found that the people running these companies had these two di distinguishing characteristics uh, and that made them level five leaders. And the two distinguishing characteristics were humility, and fierce resolve. They never wanted to be the smartest person in the room. They wanted all the people in the room to collectively be smarter than they were because ultimately those were the people that were running the company, not that person. And, and they needed to have this fierce resolve to see the game all the way through. And that makes sense to me. Uh, it's not about these iconic, you know, all the people we like to celebrate on social media, the Richard Branson's and the uh, Elon Musk's and, the, uh, you know, that's a way to do it. We'll see. Not a lot of people would follow them. You do, or Jeff Bezos says Amazon. Amazon had a toxic culture for decades under Jeff. It persevered, but it's going to do better without him. Uh, Apple's doing better with Tim Cook than it did with uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the leaders of today, you can't know everything. It's just, there's just too much. So you, you need to be able to lead with humility, surround yourself with great people, and just have a powerful sense of purpose as you lead. Uh, you don't need to be this iconic uh, figure. And interestingly, I do a lot of the corporate work. And uh, the people you don't hear about are the people that are moving the world. It's, they just don't, they keep their heads, they, they're not out there uh, buying Twitter or, uh, or, or, or whatever else. They're, they're there doing other things. 
Yeah, Doug, I certainly don't want you to think I uh, subscribe to there. There's one style of, of leadership, and that's the the flamboyant leader um, yeah. who's out there shouting from the rooftops. Uh, there's many. Well, different- that, there there's a role for that in certain sectors. You sort of need that kind of iconic leadership. I I believe that, uh, but you know, there the world is larger than the 20 iconic leaders we could create a list of right now, and they would be a they would be 10% of the GDP of the world. Uh, it would be an important 10%. I'm not saying it wouldn't be, but well, 90% yeah, I, I've got of a quick GDP. question then. You mentioned Jeff Bezos, that they'll do better, Amazon will, without Bezos. I, I think it's arguable that Jeff Bezos created the most valuable company of potentially the last 100 years in those 20 years. Yeah, and possibly. So, well, I'm just wondering how you think, like, how much more successful well, the, the question, should he have been? Well, I don't know. I it, it's it's the question of will it be enduring and I uh, and uh, or episodic? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying 20 years isn't a long time. The, I, that's I guess and, what I'm I'm wondering. And, how long and, is an enduring? And, he, and he's created and he's created value by layering things in, just like Jack Welch did by layering things into GE until GE couldn't carry it anymore and came crashing down. GE was the company of the 20th century, okay? And as soon as the 21st century hit, it it started to crumble. And, you know, we're going to see, we, you know, Elon Musk and, and they're going to layer things in, they're going to place bets and see how they're able to sustain it. I, you know, it'll be interesting to see. There's a, hey, there's a brilliant operating model. You know, it's like when Federal Express was first created. There was a, a new operating model uh, in terms of uh, package delivery. Amazon took it to the next level. But um, it's a brilliant operating, there's some brilliant operating models here. Ultimately, they got to be run by people. And the people have to be wildly engaged in the work and be feeling like they're getting paid and compensated properly for it. They've, they're, and uh, we'll, we'll just see how sustainable it is. You know, it'll probably, well, I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. I certainly wished I would have, uh, I, I, I sort of, uh, and nobody has it all right. I certainly don't. But I sort of subscribe to this Warren Bennis, I mean uh, Warren Buffett uh, approach, uh, which is is a little more uh, balanced and not and not reaching for the brass ring uh, time and time again and layering in more and more risk into the equation. So, uh, and I understand no risk, no reward, but I'm just an old food executive with uh with where you know two to ten percent growth would be great well one of the things doug makes me think of uh creative destruction continually learning continuing to evolve continuing to get better uh to push your own limits there your your own potential and and seeing what you're really capable of it's one of the things uh, i appreciate what you've been able to do uh that i've been able to learn from And, and speaking of getting able to learn say you could do this right a long form interview long conversation with anyone dead or alive who would you love just being able to ask or study way of oh there's so many people 
I I would, and I don't know that I would. Uh, I I I majored in political science at Northwestern University, and I had a focus on American presidents. Uh, and uh, of course, they're both men. I mean, they're, they're men because that's all there was. But uh, Abraham Lincoln and uh, Teddy Roosevelt were my two favorites. I grew up in Illinois, so everybody loved Lincoln. And, uh, uh, and you studied him in school pretty deeply. Uh, and I would love to just be sitting in the room uh, learning from seeing how these people dealt with these extraordinarily challenging circumstances in the world at the time and how they found a way to navigate them uh, in ways that worked for them. I was, uh, so those are the, the two that I would love to be in the room with over at a dinner party somewhere. That would, they're the two that, uh, that I find most intriguing. Two people to certainly study. Doug, this has been a, a true honor for me, a blast. Obviously, we're going to have your books linked up. Um, we're going to direct the listeners, conantleadership.com. Anywhere else you want the listeners staying connected with you or anything you want them checking out of your work? Well, we've got a uh, we've got about 400,000 uh, aspiring leaders as part of our network and social media. We're not trying to be the biggest, but we are trying to be the best in terms of creating a real dialogue around issues of substance. You can find us on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram. And, uh, and you can also find us, as you mentioned, at the, on our website. Uh, we have some special programming that we tend to do uh, 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 where we run uh, leadership blueprint leadership summits with world-renowned people. We did Brene Brown last time. We do a week uh, an hour and a half every day for a week with this lineup of leaders that are second to none. And, uh, we've got one coming up in the third week of September. So I'd encourage people to look for that. You can find it at our website and, uh, uh, be part of the conversation, help us do better. You know, we can all do better. We can all do better. There's always more to learn. And, uh, we welcome anybody who wants to be part of that journey with us. Fantastic. Well, all that'll be linked up, but Doug, I can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. Okay. Thank you very much. You guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.